Hello, and welcome to another edition of WRBH's Figure of Speech program, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Today, we'll be featuring work from Anel Lopez, who is an emerging short fiction writer. Her work has been featured at the NYU Spring and Fall Literary Readings and also been selected by La Pluma y Tinta Reading Series as well. Anel is an alumna of the Kagabee Literary Hudson Valley Writing Retreat, and her nonfiction has been published by The Setonian, and fiction work is forthcoming in Abstract Magazine and Crack the Spine. She lives in New Orleans. Take a listen. Hi, my name is Anel Lopez, and I will be reading for you a flash fiction piece titled Something Larger, Something Whole. This piece is inspired by how sometimes... Objects around us do say a lot about our lives and can somehow serve as running records for for the lives that we lead. Something larger, something whole. The wife prepared for their visit by deep cleaning the rug. It was a wedding present symbolizing fortune and happiness. Wrapped and sealed in a black tarp, the rug made its arrival into the home of the young couple where it was greeted by a side eye and a subtle wrinkle of the mouth. At 8 by 10, it covered all of the living room space, from the nicked mahogany desk that served as their TV stand to the ripped-up leather couch where they ate dinner in silence most nights. It was extravagant, and it looked out of place in the small one-bedroom apartment. The price tag had been left on it, as either an explicit reminder admonishing the couple against mistreating the gift or an accidental faux pas highlighting the sacrifices made to ensure its existence. Either way, for the price of the rug, they thought they could have gone on a honeymoon, a tradition better suited for their kind of love. A year's worth of labor had been devoted toward hang-knotting the rug's wool and silk fabrics. It was custom-made by the hands of a villager whose blessings had bestowed two generations before them the gift of a harmonious union strong enough to withstand the blow of desire. The mother of the wife had explained the arduous weaving process in detail. From the moment the villager chose the fabric to the long hours she spent spinning the materials. Every thread in the fabric, the mother told them, surrendered itself in order to become something larger, something whole. But the young couple couldn't see for themselves the value of the piece. It was beyond them. The rug's intricate patterns told a story in a language neither the wife nor the husband could yet speak. The rug was never beautiful, the wife complained. Its flowers and leaves and crowded paisley patterns were at times incomprehensible, other times meaningless. The parents' lectures and talks about their own rugs couldn't help the couple find beauty in the libelous object that seemed to require a level of attention and care they didn't know how to give. Now, Two short years after its arrival, it became uglier. Its striking hues of red and maroon were fading away before the young couple's eyes, 
With each passing day, the intensity of the colors became duller. It was losing its warmth. It was beginning to wane. From the window, the sunlight that blazed through turned the dark greens into shades of brown and yellow. Now the rug just sat there, deteriorated and overwhelmed with neglect, neglect that turned into abuse. The hapless rug suffered wounds, wounds inflicted with intent, wounds perpetrated by carelessness, wounds as tragic as the prospect of a life in disrepair, wounds as casual as spilled milk, wounds by the husband, wounds by the wife, Wounds masquerading as accidents. Wounds pleading for forgiveness. Wounds saying, it won't happen again. The first stain? It could be traced back to a screaming match that awakened the neighbors. A glass of red wine that sat too close to the edge of the table and tumbled and spilled over the light brown clusters of paisleys. The wife attempted to clean it by mixing baking soda and dish detergent. This being the first wound, she tried, with genuine effort, to heal it. But the baking soda and the dish detergent, compounded by the vigorous effort of regret, left a discolored patch that, much to the couple's dismay, just wouldn't disappear. There was also that funky smell that permeated the bottom right quadrant. It came after the dog ate and vomited an entire pizza unattended on the coffee table. That too left a stain. A third stain made its appearance shortly after. It consisted of drops of the wife's favorite nail polish. Neither she nor the husband could remember who threw the polish at the wall, when it shattered, or where it sprinkled a bright purple liquid. Occasionally, she'd find and pick at the dried-up droplets of paint, hoping, rather passively, that one day they would come off. Today, with the impending doom of questions and the looming disappointment of their parents, they decided to address the problem. They rented a steaming machine and bought industrial-grade soap. They were determined to get rid of the stains no matter how futile the effort. While waiting for the store clerk to retrieve the machine, the couple held hands and exchanged kisses on an aisle at Home Depot. Their smiles, nervous and ephemeral, hid the fact that there were only a few hours left to repair the damage. They both questioned how they ended up there, waiting, averting each other's gaze, and dodging the thought that maybe it was time to let go of the rug. Parts David struggles to chew a forkful of spaghetti that is too big for his mouth. He's doing that thing when he tries really hard to force a smile out of politeness. He hates the food. He won't tell me. I watch him stab at the neat little pile drenched in the garlic-infused oil that I got on sale at Trader Joe's. With his left hand, he holds a spoon. With his right, the fork. He twirls the fork around hastily, trying to gather as many noodles as possible. 
He acts like we have a thing to do after dinner. What's wrong? I finally ask. He looks up at me. A shirt noodle dangles from the corner of his mouth. He slurps it up. Nothing, he says. I take a sip of Cabernet and look straight into his little blue eyes. The crow's feet at the corner of his eyes make them look smaller than they are. Maybe it's not that they're so small. Maybe it's that his forehead protrudes a bit and his eyes are sunken in there, making him look more somber than he is. Nothing. Why? he asks. You hate it. I don't. Yes, you do. Okay, fine, he admits. So what's wrong with it? I wait for him to swallow the thick bulge of spaghetti he's been chewing for what seems like a minute. I'm expecting a straight answer, a truthful answer, one that isn't hidden behind the mask of table manners and the veil of politeness that seem to obfuscate David, one that will let me know that he hates garlic or spaghetti or olive oil. He swallows. I think it would have been better if you used fresh garlic or fresh herbs, he says. He's right. The dish is heavy and oily and too rich. The garlic tastes artificial. Okay, I can see that. He puts his fork down, his shoulders descend slightly. He's relieved. He pushes the plate towards the middle of the table. It makes a faint noise as it slides down the polished wood. The noise makes my cheeks warm. You're not going to finish it? I ask in disbelief. He pauses and looks at me and drags the plate back. He grabs the fork of his side and stabs at the little pile. He starts to shove noodles into his mouth and chews them awkwardly with his mouth partially open. I close my eyes. I breathe. Did you know Gabe and Carla grow tomatoes and herbs in the courtyard? They share with everyone, he says. I'm well aware of how the courtyard works, I say. Then why don't you go out there and grab some vegetables or mingle or help out or something? Might make you feel better to get some fresh air. You forget I have a broken leg, I ask him. Well, doesn't stop you from doing the things that you want to do when you want to do them. The thing I want to do is take a knife to the cast. The thing that David refers to is the fact that I grab a glass of wine every other day from the Portuguese bar down the street from our apartment. It's a short walk and about the only movement I get to do since I'm pretty much confined to this place. It bothers David for reasons he doesn't care to tell me. It turns out a lot bothers him. But he never really tells. I bother him. My presence, my being, my existing, the way I laugh, the loud cackle I let out carelessly. It bothers him. The way my hair sheds and clocks the drain drives him crazy. The fact that I burp loudly and spill things on my shirt often go without saying. Still, he has yet to say a word about any of these things. He just quietly tolerates them, then struggles to conceal his true emotions by offering the stupid-looking fake smile I want to punch right off his face. He's a robot. Okay, David, I say. I get up from the table. My crutches are leaning against the wall next to me, but I don't grab them. I decide to hop the short distance 
to the trash can where I dumped the leftover spaghetti. I hopped back to the table and grabbed David's plate, then dumped his spaghetti too. I put the plates in the sink and hopped my way to the couch. You want your crutches? He asks. Nah, for what? I can hear him excel, and it makes me smile. He grabs the crutches and brings them to me, puts them against the left side of the couch. My suit jacket smells like garlic, he says. Well, should have put it in the closet the moment you came home, I tell him, while I reach for the remote. He shakes his head and walks away from me, and I'm left there to realize that I didn't want to say what I just said. I'm provoking David, and it's like I can't stop myself. I could have reminded him to put the jacket away. I could have turned the fan on. I could have opened the windows. I didn't know the whole apartment would reek of garlic, and I chose to ignore it. And now I feel guilty and overwhelmed by the dense air. It's thick and pungent. It's hard to breathe. With every petty argument, I dig. I search for David. I search for a spark in his stoic face, in his absent-minded touch. I excavate for the parts that are unknown to me, like passion and excitement and basic happiness. I find glimmers of emotion in the sarcastic tones, in the eye rolls, and in the scoffs that take place when he turns his face to the wall to avoid my eyes. I find a man there, so I keep coming back to him. I keep poking and staring and inciting and pushing and pushing. I'm flipping through channels, surfing, looking for some mindless things to watch. It's a thing I do most these days. I sit here and I poke my leg up on a coffee table and I lose myself in the monotony of daytime TV. A short while back, before I broke my leg jumping off a trampoline trying to do something exciting with David, I'd scoff at daytime TV. I would laugh at the thought of wasting sunlight. I would mock people like my mom and Gabe, our downstairs neighbor, for watching it. Gabe also spent a lot of time at home. Unlike me, he's not injured, and he's not despised by his significant other. As far as I can tell, Carla loves Gabe. They're a sweet couple. They tend to the garden in the courtyard, and they cook. They ride their bikes to the farmer's market on Tuesday afternoons. They have lovely hair and pretty white smiles. They're naturally tan and physically fit. They wear the same clothes all the time. They have vinyl records. They smoke almost every night. Their relationship is hip. Their love is almost ethereal. They're relatively quiet, except for when Gabe plays his guitar. They've tried to become our friends, but I'm not very fond of Carla. She's got that bohemian hipster Stepford wife thing about her that just makes me want to pull her hair. When she talks, she smiles too much and nods repeatedly and paraphrases your sentences to let you know what a good listener she is. There's also this thing that happens when she's around. David stares. He sneaks glances at her and is overly friendly. He feels comfortable enough to touch her shoulder. When they speak, he looks at her. Like, he really looks at her. I fall asleep on the couch after watching a few episodes of some cooking show. I deformed the couch by sleeping on it so often. It now has a faint outline of my body. I would sleep on the bed, but it's too high for me, and it's nearly impossible to get on it with the hard cast on my leg. 
so the couch has become my refuge. At some point, David offered to find an alternative so that I can sleep in bed with him, but it was just one of those nice things he occasionally says without the intention of ever following through. I never brought it up again because when I sleep on the couch, I feel less obligated to be around him. It's not that he forces himself on me, but, you know, the expectation is just there. The next morning, I resolved to try cooking spaghetti again. This time, I'm going to add fresh parsley and basil and tomatoes from the courtyard. I get dressed quickly and head toward the back door of our apartment. I rarely use the back door. David uses it when he tries to leave the apartment without my noticing, but he forgets that this is an old building and everything creaks. I descend the back stairwell slowly, careful not to fall on my face. It's a spiral staircase that starts out wide, then narrows like a cornucopia. I can fit with my crutches, but it isn't comfortable, and I begin to wonder whether it would be faster and safer if I just hold on to both rails and hop slowly. I place the crutches down, and they slip through a gap between the steps. They hit the floor and bounce just a little. The noise echoes loudly and startles Gabe, who comes out running from his apartment. I mumble under my breath. I don't feel like talking to Gabe, or anyone for that matter. My good leg is unshaven, and I'm not wearing a bra. My boobs sag a bit, and my eyebrows need a little brushing to keep some strays in place. I feel ugly. I look down, and Gabe is already at the foot of the stairs. I'm okay, I say, but he's already skipped two steps and is running up to me. I'm okay, I'm okay. I just have to work my way down, I say. Let me help you, he says with a degree of authority I can't refuse. How do you want to do this, he says. I laugh, and we both laugh. Gabe's got one of those slightly asymmetrical smiles. It's white and bright and captivating, and it's surrounded by dimples that make him look younger than he is. I can carry you down, he adds. No, that's okay. I'm serious, he insists. What if I just hold on to you and we take, like, one step at a time? I grab onto his waist and he holds mine. His shirt is damp and I can feel heat emanating through the cotton fabric. It doesn't bother me, but he decides to address it anyway. I was working out, I'm sorry, I'm sweaty. I giggle to make him feel comfortable or to make myself feel comfortable. I don't know. No worries, I say. Have you looked at me? I look like a cavewoman housewife. Yeah, you look pretty rough. I wasn't going to say anything, but since you brought it up... We both laugh. I figure we should get that out of the way in case you end up picking me up and feeling my stubbly leg, I say. I don't mind a little bit of hair, he says. He brings me to the foot of the stairs and grabs my crutches. He then opens the screen door that leads to the courtyard. I ditch my crutches and opt to hop around. He extends his hand, but I tell him I'm okay to hold on to the wall. I step up to the courtyard and kick off the one flip-flop I'm wearing. Gabe looks at me smiling. Might as well, I say. Gabe has a tattoo of an anchor on his right bicep. It looks a bit faded, and the lines are uneven. It's completely shaded in, and it seems a bit translucent around the spot where there is a stretch mark. He is wearing shorts and flip-flops, too. He's got toes that are lanky. They're also hairy. 
They're so different from David's, whose toes are pedicured and feminine. Want to help me water these? He asks. I hop forward and seek out his hand this time around. He hands me the hose, and I struggle to find my balance, so he helps me reach the little bench next to the tomato vines. I sit. It's a beautiful day. The sun is beaming, yet it feels gentle against my pale skin. I want to lie down on a patch of dirt and sleep. I am happy to be here. I grab the hose firmly as instructed, but as Gabe cranks up the water, I lose control of the hose and end up watering myself instead. I laugh uncontrollably because this whole incident has me feeling like a child. He laughs with me, and I can't stop looking at his face. I grab the hose and point it at him. The stream of water hits him hard. He gasps. Oh, yeah? He says and pulls it from me and hoses me down. The cold water feels like a respite, so I lose myself in the moment. I feel drunk. Gabe's laughter is gentle and sweet. He bends his body forward and holds his chest as he laughs. I slap my knees and suddenly realize my cast is soaked. Crap, I say. Oh no, your cast. He runs to the faucet and shuts off the water. He rolls up the hose and hangs it on a hook that's being nailed to the wall. I look up to the building to see if any of my other neighbors see me. It seems like it's just the two of us. Let me get you a towel, Gabe says. He looks concerned. I can tell he feels guilty for getting my cast wet. The droplets of water inside the cast feel uncomfortable. I want to scratch my leg. I want to dry it. I begin to wonder what time it is. I wonder where David is and whether he'll be home soon. That's okay. I'll be fine. I try to dismiss Gabe. I just want to forget this is happening. I'll be right back, he yells. I stay on the bench, waiting for him to return. I don't know what time it is, but I feel like David will be home soon. My heart beats faster, almost like it's bleeding out. It feels like the sun has moved closer to me. I'm hot. My head is pounding with the realization that David is going to kill me when he sees that my cast is soaked. What do I even say? Before I can form some semblance of a logical excuse, I begin to cry. I cry. I cover my mouth, but I can't stop myself from sobbing. I don't want Gabe to see me. I don't want Gabe to hear me. I don't want to be here anymore. I get up and hop towards the wall where my crutches are. I grab the crutches and head towards the front of the building where the stairs are wider. I have to move. I can't wait for Gabe or for his towel or his help. I need to leave. I grip the handles of my crutches firmly. Then remember, I need fresh herbs. So I hold on to the crutches with my left hand and bend over and yank a bunch of basil. I hold the basil between my teeth. I then turn the corner of the building. Every step is a long, desperate leap as I attempt to avoid Gabe. Tammy? I don't respond. Tammy! I can't. Maybe I'll explain tomorrow. Right now, I have to go make spaghetti. That was New Orleans-based author Anel Lopez reading a flash fiction piece as well as a short story. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. 
Tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.